Welcome to another episode of your Wild and Exposed podcast. Before we begin today's show, we have an exciting announcement from our sponsor, Precision Camera in Austin, Texas, the largest camera store between New York and L.A. Precision Camera is offering Wild and Exposed listeners a free 16 by 24 fine art print of one of your images with free shipping as well within the United States. To get this, go to our website at wildandexposed.com. On our homepage, go to the menu at the top right and go to our sponsors page. There, you'll find a quick link to Precision Camera. And once you're on their page, go to the option for a virtual consultation with one of their friendly and knowledgeable staff. They'll be more than happy to discuss and answer any questions that you might have for gear that you're interested in. At the conclusion of your visit, they'll give you a coupon code that will give you access to order this free 16 by 24 fine art print of one of your images. By supporting Precision Camera, you're also supporting your favorite podcast, Wild and Exposed. Now, on with today's show. Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes, Jason Loftus, and Mark Raycroft. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed podcast. We're blessed this week to have an international guest, Will Patino, coming to us from New Zealand, on the South Island of New Zealand. Uh, we've got myself, Ron Hayes, Michael Morrow coming to us from Alaska, Jason Loftus coming to us from Utah. I know, Jason, you've made it out at least once since last time we spoke, correct? Uh, yeah, I was able to get out and do some early rut action with the elk here locally, and um, actually in Colorado, not locally. That's not fair. I'm not in Colorado right now, but um, yeah, it was a good trip. Had some fun with the the elk early on so getting ready to get out and get after it again here in another week or so try to hit the high peak of the rut so uh will welcome thank you so much guys it's a pleasure to be here so just to paint paint a picture of where you're at you're specifically you're in the fjordlands but specifically where mm. so the yeah fjordland is quite a large region in the southwest of the south island and the only town in Fiordland is where I live, and the town is called Tiania. Um, so this is where I live. The population here is approximately about 3,000 people, so quite small, um, you know, kind of like a rural community, uh, a lot of farmland out here. But the farmland is basically off to the east, and then immediately to the west of me, just down the road from my house, is a, a large lake and all the mountains and it's basically the gateway to Fjordland right here and Fjordland is you know just kilometers miles upon miles of glaciated mountains obviously fjords and temperate rainforest um, so and then everything that is involved with that type of scenery you know waterfalls and lakes and all that stuff that someone like me is a landscape photographer and I'm sure you guys just outdoorsmen truly appreciate, you know, it's just, and that's, that's what I fell in love with. And then just the ever changing light and weather patterns and everything with living down this part of the world. It just, it's truly inspiring to be honest. Yeah. I think that looking at your images and we'll get to that 
shortly, but the weather and the impact of the weather on your on your landscape images, I think, is something that really stands out. Yeah, when I where I lived in Australia was south of Sydney, just on the coast, and yeah, sure, nice beaches and nice weather. But yeah, as a photographer, man, you just have these runs of blue sky, blue sky, blue sky, and you know, for me, especially back there, it, all you could photograph was seascapes and you need some cloud in the seascapes to really bring it to life and give you some colour. And you could go for two to three weeks without picking the camera up because there was just, there was nothing, you know, it was quite miserable. <laughs> Whereas here, sometimes it could be the opposite where you're like, man, it is just really sucked in and you can't get out there at all for maybe a week or two at a time. But yeah, thankfully, the stuff that I like to photograph is essentially that type of weather, you know, this type of dramatic type um, weather systems. It plays a huge role in my photography, definitely. So how'd you get started in photography? I was reading on your website, it started in like 2012, is that right? Yeah, about there. It might have been like late 2011, but essentially uh, went to Europe with my wife. And as you do, you think we should have a decent camera if we're going to do this big holiday. So I went and picked up a... um, the Canon 550D twin lens kit. So it came with a 18 to 55 and I think 55 to 200. And uh, yeah, basically took that around Europe. And for some reason, I gravitated towards being the camera guy for the trip, you know, it was either me or my wife. And I said, I'll, I'll try to learn how to use this camera and basically did that, had a fun time, but it didn't truly spark off an actual interest in landscape photography or anything like that. But the fact that I had that camera at home meant that A couple of months later, I basically, I used to skateboard growing up and I had a friend who mentioned how he shared his photos on some platform and I couldn't remember the, where he said the photos were. So I think I, in the app store on the iPhone, I must've searched photography and I believe Instagram came up and this is back in, like I said, late 2011. So I downloaded Instagram thinking that this is where his photos were And uh, long story short, it wasn't where my friend put his photos. It must have been Flickr or something. But when I downloaded Instagram and I started seeing all these photographs, I just felt inspired, particularly when I was looking at landscape photos. I thought, man, that just looks like fun. And that inspired me to get that camera out of the cupboard, which I hadn't used since our European holiday. And I started just taking photos of anything and everything, you know, going out in the backyard, photographing flowers and bees and yeah, my dog, as you do, you know, you just start playing around with the camera. And then I started using Instagram around that exact same time. And that basically became like a journal for my photography. And back then, Instagram was quite a, a pretty cool place as far as community goes. If I found another Australian on there, it was like, whoa, another, another Aussie's on here. And you'd really quickly form friendships and it was very, there was just a good positive vibe about it. Now, I don't know if that was just because I first picked up a camera. So, you know, these days it's so much more business orientated, but back then it just, there was no celebrities on there. There was no brands. And so basically I just started getting this passion for photography and then that instant feedback and friendship building through social media just specifically instagram so it was like the perfect recipe really and i was you know a bit of a rough spot at my in my life i was struggling with my mental health and the photography just kept on helping me get out of that and you know as corny as it sounds it helped me see the world in a new light 
it was just a perfect storm. So it just went from there basically. And then as the years rolled on, I, you know, slowly figured out what I truly like photographing and, you know, what I wanted to do with my photography and everything like that. But yeah, I'd be lying if I, if I didn't admit that Instagram played a, a pretty big part, pretty big uh, role in my photography journey, particularly early on. So that's where it all started really. Well, yeah, it's a pretty common story uh, for people that started in that era. I mean, Jason, you have a very similar story too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I had a friend of mine that um, told me about uh, Instagram and said, you got to start sharing your images on there. And, and yeah, very similar story to, to Will. And I, and I would imagine others here as well. But, yeah, uh, it's a great tool, right? We all uh, – I've made a lot of friends and met a lot of people through photography and through Instagram um, especially back when it wasn't so, <laughs> uh, commercialized and maybe, uh, negative in a lot of ways now, but, but yeah, it's still, it's a great way to share your work and to journal your work and to meet people. So, so we'll give us a, yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, bring us from that point. So getting on Instagram and getting that feedback to now you're essentially a full-time pro photographer. I mean, that's a, a lot of work in there right how does that progression happen and we get a ton of questions like yeah. that on the podcast so just hearing people's stories is pretty interesting yeah uh so i've been a full-time photographer uh for almost seven years now 100 percent full-time just off landscape photography my wife is a stay-at-home mom and she helps in the back end with what i do so when I was, you know, really getting serious about photography, which to be honest was pretty much straight away, I've got, I guess I have an addictive personality. So once I decided that I'm going to play around with the camera, it was like, well, I want to do it the best I can. I don't want to be subpar. I was looking at my photos and I just, I just wasn't happy. And to be honest, it's still the same today. I look at my work and I think, man, that's wrong. That's wrong. That could be better. So I had that really early on. I had zero desire to monetize my photography whatsoever. The desire was just, I want to be a better photographer because what I'm seeing and feeling, I'm not doing justice with the camera. So I just want to get better. And then, so let's say that was 2012, around 2014, by that stage, I was getting a little bit of interest from tourism companies, uh, to fly me out to re where they were, for example, the Canadian Tourism Board and just various places in Australia because I had a following on Instagram of, let's say, maybe this is early on, maybe after a year, about 10,000 followers. And back then, that was quite a lot. Like, like I mentioned, there was no celebrities really on there and things like that. So I started to stand out, even though the work was not that high of a calibre, um, it just stood out because there wasn't that many other people on there particularly professional photographers. So I started getting the occasional opportunity to, uh, it was like an influencer job, to be honest, go somewhere, try and photograph it the best I could, and then share the photos on my Instagram and promote that region. Um, did a few of those jobs. At the time, I was a full-time uh, HVAC technician, so air conditioning, refrigeration so I would take a few days off work to go and do these gigs, uh, which was like, wow, this is amazing. You know, I never thought I'd travel with my camera or anything like that. And then I set up a website. I was selling prints, which, as you guys are probably aware, you know, the print industry is pretty aggressive and hard. And so I, I wasn't really pushing it, but it was there in the background. And then I started teaching every so often on the weekend, running workshops, one-on-one -on -one workshops, because I started getting interest from people through social media. People were asking me 
either do you sell prints, do you do workshops, and then, like I mentioned, every so often getting these opportunities to travel with the camera. So by the time you factor all that in, I still did not have a desire to try and live off photography because I just didn't think it was possible to sustain long-term. And I didn't want to lose the passion for it. There was a bit of a fear involved. And then my son was born. And when my son was born, life obviously got a lot busier, you know, trying to be a full-time tradesman, being a dad, a husband, and then having this hobby, which I truly loved with all my heart and was opening up some possibilities, you know, like workshops, etc. It's like something's got to give here. And, you know, it just happened to work out that literally in those first month or two of my son being born, there's a few changes going on with where I worked. I was going to have to travel a little bit more. I think I had a few bad days and maybe a few things rubbed me the wrong way of the boss and just something inside of me said, maybe I can live off photography full time. Maybe if I look at this properly and see if there's a way to make this work, maybe it's not as hard as I'm making out. I think deep down, I probably I had a fear that maybe I'd fail if I did try but then, like I said, something happened. It was like a switch that went off in my head. So after two or so years of just doing it all the time and loving it and getting the occasional um, income from photography, no thought of doing it full time. And then suddenly the switch went and then that month I quit. And my main business model was built around running workshops. But instead of just doing the sunrise workshop on a Saturday or a sunset or something like that, I figured if I can do longer workshops for a week and get a group of people together and do that several times per year, that could help build a foundation of of a business that might be more sustainable. And that's essentially what I springboarded from. I didn't know if I could do that until I quit my job. You just couldn't run a week-long workshop by trying to work another job full-time. So it was a bit of a leap of faith um, and it was pretty hard to make that decision because, like I said, newborn son, leaving a stable job, which I was very comfortable in, you know, I felt a little bit judged, you know, what are people going to think here, my parents, my wife's parents, et cetera, just people, my work colleagues, you know, it did look selfish and pretty crazy. But now it's, uh, yeah, coming on seven years and, of course, it's uh, had its ups and downs, but, uh, you know, it's a real blessing that still here to this day and, yeah, there has been things with COVID, et cetera, that's made it harder, but I wouldn't change it for the world. And then the move to New Zealand was just another similar step along the way, you know, something just pulling on your heart and going, you know what, I'm just going to go for this and just don't want to have any regrets when I get to be an old man, you know. So here we are. <laughs> it's just – I think uh, the the big thing really, to be honest, because with teaching I get a lot of people who might just have picked up a camera. They barely know how to turn it on and they say, I want to make this a career. I think the blessing for me was I didn't have that mindset. The mindset was I want to be a better photographer. I don't want to make money from this. I just want to take better photos. And I truly meant it and I still do to this day. And I think that really worked in my favor. There was no agenda behind what I was doing. It was purely passion and obsession. And I think that is 100% the key there. I can totally relate to the switch going off. That's something that I just recently did here, what, two months ago now, uh, and made the made the jump to full time. And I am a little older, <laughs> so I can relate. It was, for me, it was being at a point in life where, I was, I was comfortable, but I was too comfortable, and uh, mm. you know, making that switch has been the best thing ever for me. And Michael's always just said, you know, you just got to do it. 
if you're if you're ready and and you're at that point you've just got to make the jump and that's in the end that's kind of what happened i had a good opportunity that helped out with that but in the end it was just one of those uh like you said kind of a mental health type situation where i could stay and be miserable or i could get away and do something that i enjoyed and maybe make a little bit less money but we'll carry on be 100 percent happier yeah and where i was uh, it wasn't until i left and then i looked back and i was like man i was in a pretty bad place with my old career i was just going through the motions pretty much putting in the minimal effort required to get paid at the end of the week. I just had no passion for what I was doing. And I was only in my mid twenties at the time. And to have that attitude at so young, it's just not a good place to be in, you know? Um, and that was exactly what I thought. I thought, even if I'm made less from photography, if I'm happier and I'm a better person from it, a better father, a better husband, then that's what matters the most at the end of the day. So that was a real big driving factor there. And I think it's important to know that your individual journey and how you do it, it's going to be different from the next person. We all have to figure out our own path. There's no definitive way of making it work. And I think at the end of the day, just trying would be the main thing because you don't want to miss that. I was really at a crossroad where it was like I was getting pulled either direction and I just had to really just make that decision. And yeah, it's hard. It's hard to face. I had a fear of failure, I think, and I didn't really realize that until a few years later I could look back and go, yeah, I think I was really scared of failing and just having to come back with my tail between my legs and ask for my job back and admit to people that family that, yeah, okay, it didn't work. And I think that was always in the back of my mind deep down and I had to overcome that fear. And, and then now I look back and I think, who cares? Even if it failed, like at least you tried, like – but I think it's easy to just, you know, my father's been an electrician his whole life and it's he never really liked his job at all and he'd be disgruntled going to work every day, but it was kind of just what you did, you know, like it was almost an expected thing that, yeah, you're not meant to like your work. That's just how it is, mate. Just work, get home, put the food on the table, carry on. But I don't know, that just didn't gel with me. Maybe it's just a, a sens sensitive new age guy or whatever it is, but I'm like, nah, life is shouldn't be about that, you know. Work is such a big aspect of your life. You really need to enjoy what you're doing. It doesn't mean that, yeah, we can all go and live our dream jobs, but you've got to have something that keeps you feeling alive. And, yeah, that wasn't happening for me in my former job, that's for sure. Absolutely agree, 100%. It's funny, Will, we've... We've, you know, doing the podcast, we've had the opportunity to talk to quite a few different folks and different photographers from different walks of life. And um, your your point's very, um, your point you made is very profound. The fact that people come into it in their own journey, you know, we've probably, let's just say we've talked to a hundred different people and we've heard a hundred different stories of how they've gotten, you know, into the full-time photography or videography profession. So. Uh, it's a very valid point you made. Um, and it's always interesting to me to hear that, right? How did people come into this? Where did their passion for photography or videography begin? You know, and, and for those that do make it a full-time career, how did they end up making it that? Um, so anyways, I, that's a, that's an interesting story. I, I like your approach and I do agree with what you're saying. The fact that it was your passion first, I think, you know, it, it says a lot for how you've gotten to where you're at today. So, yeah, no, thanks. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with being picking up a camera and saying, okay, I want to make this my career, even before you've barely taken a photo. But I really think that 
you know, if you've got that foundation there of the love for it, then you almost can't go wrong because if it doesn't work out as a career or a, a side income, whatever you're intending it to be, at least you've still got the love for photography there. So, And that was somewhat my approach of, I'll give it a try. If it doesn't work, yeah, it's a bummer, but I've still got photography. So therefore, I still win at the end of the day because photography is what I love first and foremost. But there's definitely, there's so many different ways to go about making it a career or even just, a, a, you know, a partial like side career or something like that. And it is interesting to see the way it's, it's done. And it's great that there's so much diversity. The the age we live in now, there is so many different ways to make an income from photography. And uh, I can't believe how different it is from 10 years ago. And then obviously beyond, it's just a totally different playing field now. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head with the no regrets. When you say that, that's that's it. You just got to have that attitude and just be willing to do it. And I think we're all raised with, well, at least I was, and it sounds like you were. I mean, you see how your folks did it, and you're like, okay, well, I just go get a job, and I go home, and I do my thing. It's the same thing every day, and and you just fall into that trap. But if you're willing to just – I always said, I if I have to go flip burgers, then that's what I'll do. You know, and it just frees up that whole – you just get that attitude, well, I'll fix it. If it doesn't work, I'll fix it. But if I'm willing to put in the hard work, who knows what's going to happen. And generally, it's going to work if you have any sort of talent at all. And if you don't figure out the photography is it, you might figure out that, hey, I have this awesome work ethic. Now I just need to figure out where to apply it. So it, it works for all kinds of – it works in all kinds of ways. Yeah, right on. And just being self-employed and – I've learned so much about myself and I've worked harder than I ever have in my life. And they're things that I'm so grateful for as well. I just feel like my work ethic is, has risen so much by taking this step. And yeah, there's so many things along the way, which I've gained, which have nothing to do with photography, but just life lessons and everything is, um, yeah, been a, another blessing that's come from it all as well. And it, it's only because I was able to take that step and, Look, at the end of the day, it's a hard thing to make a career out of. And I don't, you know, I'm not going to hide that. It's not everyone that has a camera is going to be able to turn it into a career or even become close to being able to do that. And I guess that's why I still stress the fact that just get that love for photography first, the love for the art. And then I feel like opportunities will open up more naturally um, instead of aggressively trying to find them. Um, it's, yeah, it's a tricky one. It's a delicate balance, but yeah, in summary, you know, like I said, just, just the way things are done by other people and particularly those before us doesn't mean that that's the way you have to go down, particularly if you're not living a fulfilling life. Yeah. I think it's the, you know, you said something before there too. It's, I think you end up working way harder and way more hours. Let's say you have a regular job, you're doing eight hours a day or whatever it is, wherever (laughs) you're at, but my days are way longer than that, but I love what I do. So I don't really like feel like it's work. You know, you just like, Oh, well, this yeah. is just the deal. So I think that all yeah, plays in. Absolutely. It feels like it's more just part of your life um, instead of a separate compartment. And now it just becomes, like you said, you could be working these obscure hours, but it just, just kind of feels natural to do it. You don't feel like you're clocking on and get the boss breathing down your neck. And yeah, exactly. You, you probably work way more hours, but, it's less of a burden, that's for sure. So with your workshops, how what's your clientele mostly? Is it from New Zealand or do you get worldwide clients? And, and 
Tell us a little bit about that part of that business or your business. Yeah. My, uh, my workshops have always primarily been, uh, let's say at least 50% Australian. And I put that down to the fact that I am an, I'm an Aussie. A lot of my early say followers or whatever, uh, are from Australia, particularly building up social media across 10 years, you know, you're just naturally going to pick up a lot of people that are from the same country as you. So I'd say a good 50% are from Oz. And then that other 50% is there's probably a good chunk that's American, maybe 30, 40%. Unfortunately for me, a very small percentage is New Zealand uh, clients, which has meant the last 18 months we've had borders shut and they still are closed here in New Zealand. So not a single client of mine or people who are booked in to do workshops over here with me has been able to do it. Um, so that's made it challenging, but yeah, to, to answer your question, it's a lot of Aussies, American, and then just different parts of the world in general, but a very small percentage is actually uh, from New Zealand. You've adapted to that quite well, though, I'm, and I don't know when you started doing your online training, that kind of thing, um, but that's been, it looks like, a big part of your last 18 months is is putting that online, those online courses together. So how has that gone? How has that process gone? You know, I, I was telling someone yesterday, I went from running a business that was maybe had a 10% portion of online income, for example. So I had some tutorials made, but it was only out of my yearly income, maybe 10%. I now run a business which is 90% online. Um, so in 18 months, it was it was out of no choice, really. You know, I've got two kids, a wife, like I've said, mortgage. Um, if I didn't adapt, I'd be, I don't know where I'd be, to be honest. So thankfully... Um, before the COVID really kicked off here, the pandemic, sorry, um, and before borders closed, I started, I had made some video tutorials, about eight hours worth back in 2019. Something inside of me just said, I should make some video tutorials. I just saw a bit of a, a good space in the market there to, to get down what I do in a workshop, put it in a video format, and that way... I can teach people that would never be able to come over here and do it in person with me. So thankfully I had a good little collection of tutorials there. By the time the pandemic rolled around, uh, those tutorials still were greatly helping just put food on the table, but it was definitely getting to a point where I'd kind of exhausted my reach with how I was marketing those and just potential customers and everything like that. So essentially I had to, um, you know, think of a, a better, a bit of a plan. How are we going to get, how long a border is going to be shut, especially early on. We had no idea. We thought it might be a few months. You know, we didn't think eight, you know, 18 months later, we're still here with borders closed. Um, and to cut a long story short, basically I, I've have a marketing team now and I've more than doubled the amount of uh, like curriculum that I have in my courses so using a marketing team, which is able to do what they do, frees me up to just keep creating, you know, more con I hate the word content, but let's just call it content anyway. And now that's, that's essentially it. So, and it's truly, um, you know, it's, it's just kept us alive, um, without, you know, dramatizing it too much, but where I live, it's such a small town and it's reliant on international tourism 
the restaurants, for example, um, just things like that. There's no jobs here because so many people have lost their jobs because the borders are shut. They've had to leave. Any jobs that are available get taken quickly because, um, you know, people are looking for work because they've lost their jobs as well. So I'm in a, I was really in a position here. I was like, got to kind of switch this around pretty quickly. Otherwise, you know, it's going to get bad pretty quickly. Um, and that's, that's essentially what we've done. And the hard part is with, you know, having a business now that is so reliant on the online world and essentially sales is that you really don't know from month to month where you're going to be at with a paycheck, but we've been doing it long enough now, uh, that I know that we're okay. And if I keep working hard and, you know, keep trying to create new stuff and developing a YouTube and just branching out a little bit with what I do, then it all seems okay. And then God willing, if the board is open, we'll, we'll run the workshops again, etc. So it's been a pretty turbulent 18 months of just really having to just change the business model completely. You know, I went from being a guy that was like a guide and a teacher out in the field to now having to do it via videos and, <laughs> uh, it's pretty crazy and just having to use uh, a video camera more and filming and editing and thankfully like i said i had a little bit of experience with that and i did have some stuff created already but now the other tutorials i originally had i had a friend film those and edit those whereas now it's just me here just by myself so <laughs> but the way i view it i was making a video the other day just for youtube and halfway through creating the video i thought to myself this is kind of like just running my workshops, but instead of talking to my clients right here in front of me, I just have to talk to this GoPro or this camera and then the clients or whoever, they, they watch it later on. So I feel like I'm still running workshops, but you're just talking to a video camera instead of actually people face to face. It's definitely not my preferred way to do things, but I'm just grateful that we're still here. I'm still able to provide from my family for my family from photography at the end of the day because I know there's so many people around the world and even right here that are doing it tough. So I'm just truly grateful that I'm able to still do what I'm doing in the current climate. Yeah, that's great. So you have, well, in my opinion, you have a, a fairly particular style. Do you purposefully chase the weather? Because you've always got that element of drama uh, in your images. So is that something that you spend a lot of time watching weather apps and that kind of thing to see what's coming and where you want to make your decision about where you want to be uh, with that information in mind? Yeah, 100%. Um, I didn't even realize that until a few months back. And I was like, wow, it it dictates everything with my photography. And of course, with digital files, you know, we can always, you know, you could change a sky if you want to, and we can brighten shadows and things like that. But you can't truly create proper, whether it's atmosphere or a storm or whatnot. And for me, I enjoy, that's, that's probably what I love most about photography is the experience and being in complete awe and reverence of nature and those humbling moments that we've all experienced out there. That's, that's what I want to feel and experience. And then the cameras, the photo is almost just a byproduct of that experience itself. So yes, you know, if I look at my tab here in the internet browser, there's three weather forecasting tools permanently open. 
and I'm looking at them five times a day, maybe more. I love it. I just love looking at what's what systems are coming in and where I live here. We're on an island anyway, but then being in the southwest, we just have a constant flow of just weather patterns always moving through. So I'm always looking for anything that's going to you know, be conducive to creativity, essentially. And for me, it is those rainstorms or clearing, clearing rain, snow, pretty much anything but a clear day. When it's a clear day, that's a good day to be home and do some gardening or something. But, you know, if it's something a bit more intense, the type of weather that people would shy away from and say, oh, it's looking miserable, that's when you won't find me. I'll be away for a few days trying to get amongst that. So, yeah, a lot of what I like to shoot and create does revolve around the weather completely. Um, but I'm always, you know, it's amazing how much is just spontaneous and you're just being in the right moment and you see something that you could never have forecasted anyway. That plays a huge role in my photography, um, just that spontaneity. But it's about putting yourself out there in those, like I said, those those conditions and environments that are just conducive to creativity. But 100%, you know, the weather's everything for me. That's how I determine if I'm going to go out with the camera. It's got to come down to the weather first and foremost, definitely. That's great. As wildlife guys, you you just get out there and typically around, you know, I plan more around certain wildlife behaviors than I do around weather. But anytime that you see weather coming, you definitely want to, make it a point to make sure you're in the field because those opportunities don't come around all the time. Um, but it seems, you know, landscape is almost completely the opposite. Your, your focus is on just being there during those dramatic times. Yeah. I will often see a location. I might, I might be there looking at it and I'll say, this is magnificent. The composition, all these elements, but it needs, and then it might be snow on the peaks or snow on the ground, or maybe it needs waterfalls with the rain. Or So, yeah, a lot of the locations I want to photograph, it's about saying to myself, okay, what can the weather bring to this place to make it what I think would be the best possible scene? And let's, you know, a lot of the time I'm still settling for second best. Like I said, I always look at my photos and think, oh, it could have been and that's what keeps driving me, the fact that it could always be better. But, yeah, certainly it plays a major role and it is so different to what you guys do or if you're a hunter or I've got friends that they just like to go hiking. They just go hiking, they pick the days in advance and they go no matter what and they just get what they're given. Whereas for me, I won't just say I'm going out next Tuesday with the camera regardless. I just typically – the only time I do that is when I really just need to get out. That's when I'll just go regardless. But, yeah, a lot of it can be solely based around the weather, which can be frustrating at times if you're waiting for the right conditions. Um, but thankfully, you know, like I said, if you, I just find if you put yourself out there and you're open to what nature's presenting, you'll be able to find something that, inspires you it could lead to an image and even if it doesn't it's going to be rewarding experience anyway let's face it most of the time i go out or at least half the time i don't come back with a photo that i end up keeping but i never regret going out in those times anyway and if anything i'll learn something about the location on how to approach it the next time that i try and go there i think that's i think that's pretty common across the board there there are lots of times where you don't come back with a you know, your grandiose image, but 
you do learn something every time you're out, whether it's behavior or behavior of the light or what time you want to be and what angle you want to be at as far as the light's concerned, that kind of thing. So how long did it take you to develop your style? Or do you feel that that you're there yet? I guess I should ask that. I feel like I'm getting pretty close in the ballpark of creating what I truly, what truly is me. Uh, probably took a good five years, to be honest. It was probably when I moved to New Zealand. That's where I felt like not only am I finally home, but I'm, I have something I can work with in synergy with the, with the environment. In Australia, it was always a battle to, to create the images I wanted to create because, like I said, the weather or just the subject matter wasn't truly me. Uh, so, yeah, I think it took a good five years. And, you know, I've got two Instagram accounts. The main one I use now, I didn't start that until I pretty much moved here because I felt like it was a new chapter. My original Instagram, the first one I started, that just has such a mix of photography and there's still glimpses of what I do in there, but then there's a lot of stuff where it makes me cringe almost, you know, and it's just all part of the journey. That's, but we all, obviously every single creative person will have be the same way. But I think, yeah, it definitely took five years or so for me to figure it out and just to learn the craft. And then there's just so much to learn and grow and it's always evolving and changing anyway. But I think it definitely was a good solid five years to just really, and yeah, maybe one in five photos in that first five years had that glimpse of what I, what I kind of do now. So it was always there. Um, but yeah, it just took a while. And the big one was just having, having the canvas to work with, which is this type of scenery here in New Zealand. That, that was like the, the final piece of the puzzle really to have it permanently is, um, yeah, it's just critical to what I do. You know, if I didn't live here, it'd be really hard to, because I'm just out there so much. It's right on my doorstep um, and I have a lot of creative freedom to pursue the, the weather and everything. And if that's not there and I was somewhere else, then you would start to photograph other things just for the sake of it because you want to get out there for the camera and then that would start to change the overall look of the images and everything like that. So, yeah, it's like, you know, it's like a dance partner almost, the landscape that I have to work with. It's, a, it's like a relationship. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Well, I was looking, you know, at your work, obviously it's amazing. You have a really neat, unique style. I like your style. Um, as I'm looking at your work, a lot of it comes from New Zealand and Australia. Is that fair to say? Most of it comes from New Zealand, Australia? Yeah, most of it. And then I've, I've done a good few trips to Iceland, maybe eight or so. So there's a fair few Iceland stuff, Patagonia a few times, Canada a few times, but definitely the bulk of my portfolio and, you know, most recent images is going to be New Zealand. The Australia stuff is probably the oldest stuff as well, really. So the most modern is New Zealand and, and Iceland and Patagonia. Gotcha. That, that, okay, that answers my question because I was actually just going to ask with the – there's so many amazing places around the world to go do scene, you know, scenic-type, uh, landscape-type photography. If you, know, if you were starting to broaden your, your scope there and start to visit some of those other places, but it sounds like, yeah, you absolutely are. So, Yeah, there's places that call me. You know, Alaska is one of them. Um, going to different regions in Canada would be amazing. I'm really not drawn anymore. The first few years of being a landscape photographer, you really get drawn to 
the big iconic places, Iceland, um, you know, Norway, Patagonia, etc. Because with you see those images so often, and it's obviously inspiring. And but now I just feel like in my career and most of my images are now they're not iconic places um, because I truly love that exploration side of landscape photography. It doesn't mean you have to go do a twenty day um, expedition somewhere in the wilderness, but just being out and it's so refreshing to work with things that I haven't seen before. I find if I go to a place that I've already seen photographed more than once or twice, then I just don't want to get the camera out. I just feel like I'm copying someone's, it's almost like a musician just playing someone else's riff. It doesn't really, it doesn't inspire me. And there's nothing wrong with that, especially when you're learning. But the most enjoyable moments for me are when I'm, and inspiring moments are when I'm looking at something that I just have never seen before. That's so inspiring. And that's what I have here where I live, uh, especially in Fiordland, where it's just 99% wilderness. But then, yeah, just going up to Alaska, even Antarctica, do an expedition down there. But this is all long-term stuff. And I'm more than happy to – initially, I never intended to be a guy that just photographed one area. Um, I just wanted to be a landscape photographer. Now, I, if someone labelled me as, like, New Zealand landscape photographer or something like that, I'm, I'm more than fine with that um, because here there is unlimited inspiration and potential. But I, I do definitely want to do a few just private trips to, to other places, like I said, um, just for me, you know, no other motives. The, I went to Iceland initially. One, I truly wanted to go there, but I wanted to look at running workshops there and same as, um, you know, Canada and Patagonia. So there was always other motives with going to those areas, uh, whereas now I'm comfortable to maybe just leave, say, for example, workshops here and the bulk of my work and then maybe once a year just do a private trip somewhere just, just to experience different parts of the world. But the places I do want to go to, there's still that similar type of aesthetic that I have down this way, that's for sure. I'm definitely drawn to a particular type of scenery, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's neat. Um, and we almost let him off the hook with you guys, but I've, we got to ask you. You know what? The yeah, this leads right into oh, it no. perfectly. So, uh, one of our favorite questions we ask our guests is, "Do you have a favorite experience?" Right? It, it could be with your camera. It could be just an outdoor experience you've had a a special moment, whatever it might be. But do you have a favorite experience that you would be willing to share with us? It's not a fair question, is it? <laughs> I, you guys know there's just so many, but if I'm truthful, I'll just go to the first thing that came to mind. There is two, but I'll just try and narrow it down to one. The, the first, the, you know, the main one, I guess, um, years back, years ago, a friend of mine, before I was doing photography full-time, he, uh, he said, what's the bucket list photo? And where I lived in Australia, there's uh, some coastal sea stacks, you know, really nice, dramatic, big spires that rise out of the ocean. And it was kind of my little stomping ground when I first started photography, like the training ground. It was just really photogenic and I just loved it, had good memories there. And I said to him, lightning bolt, the location was called Cathedral Rocks uh, and the town's called Kiama. So Cathedral Rocks at Kiama. And I said, a lightning image there would just be the pinnacle of what I want to achieve with photography, you know? <laughs> and then um, I said to him, I think I'll get that shot, but it could take a good five to 10 years. And, you know, that's, I truly meant it. Yeah. Pretty rare, especially in Australia. You might, if you're lucky, get 10 
thunderstorms a year roll. It just depends, you know, but it's not that common. And within 12 months, I was, I had that cam- that photo on the back of my camera, you know. I, I would watch every storm that would roll through. And there was a few times I went out chasing and it just didn't work. And then there was one one period there in the summer where there was four days straight of thunderstorms. And I remember racing out to that location. I think it might have been the second day. So I failed the first day. And I got there right on sunset. And this storm was coming from the uh, – which direction? It was coming from the west, moving out to the east. So I'm on the coast there, the east coast. So it's coming from inland, and I'm tracking it, so I'm going to be positioned as it comes overhead and then out to the ocean. And I set up at the location, and with photographing lightning, the easiest thing to do is just put a wide-angle lens on so you're obviously capturing a lot of sky. And that way, you know, your chance of catching a bolt is vastly, you know, improved. But the composition for me to do justice to this C-stack, you can't be on a wide-angle lens because the stack gets too small. So I'll put a 50mm prime on to really bring this thing big. And obviously, for 50mm prime on a landscape with foreground included, the portion of sky you have is just so small. There's just the minimum amount of sky in the frame. And I set up and I was just shooting long exposures. They must have been like 30-second long exposures because it's getting quite dark. I'm under an umbrella because it's starting to rain. There is lightning going off left and right of my composition, but not the composition itself. I'm getting a bit nervous because I'm out in a lightning storm under an umbrella. It's raining now. It's getting dark. And I said to myself, I must have been shooting for a good 15 minutes straight, maybe more. And I said, all right one or two more frames and then it's time to get out of here. And then it was basically during that last frame where the lightning just went off perfectly behind this C-stack. It's, you know, if you're going to fake this thing in Photoshop or something, it's exactly where you would want to place this bolt. And now I just remember looking at the back of the camera and just, uh, it was just such a surreal experience. It was one of the first times that I really pre-visualized something and then it, and materialized, you know, months later, about a year later almost. And it was just so humbling and just powerful to be like, man, I, I thought of this image in my head and I've got it as hard as it was. I, I may, you know, it came, it, it came to reality and I'll just never forget that moment that happened. And then after that, I had to run for cover inside a cave. There's a sea cave there. And then when I got in the cave, I was like, Hey, might as well keep shooting. And then I ended up getting shots out of the cave with lightning as well. And, Man, it was just a night when I finally got back to the car. I think just the, the adrenaline and I just remember shaking and it was just, I'll never forget it. It was 2014 and that's still the one thing that comes to mind. And then, of course, since then, every year there's one or two moments I have like that, you know, probably averages out one or two a year that really just shakes you to the core and it almost just transcends, you know, anything that I can put into words or even put into an image. But yeah, that would be one of them, you know. It was just such a powerful thing and I'll never forget it. And I still look at the image and it's, you know, seven, eight years old now and I'm still happy to keep that in the portfolio and I think it still holds its weight to this very day. It was, yeah, such a fond memory, incredible. That's what it's all about. Yeah, that's a great story, great example. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at that picture Mike, from the tunnel something. right now. It's pretty cool. It's got all that perfect composite. Well, it's a square on the on your website. I didn't click on it. I don't know. If it's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's a. There's the cave one, and then the 
you'll see the vertical. So it was a vertical because it was 50 mil. I went vertical to try and pick up a little bit of like a foreground leading line. And yeah, you can see how tight the, the framing was. I think I called it ancient of days. And uh, yeah, you know, that location is just, <laughs> it's a cool spot, you know, it's really inspiring. And it just, to me, it was like, this needs a lightning bolt, this place, this is a lightning location. And yeah, to see it happen, just, yeah, I'll never forget it. So I was going to ask if you, obviously you're doing video because you're doing the workshops or the online courses. Is that, do you see yourself transitioning more to video with today's world? You know, and all the, you know, everybody, like for me, when I get on Instagram now, I just go to video. I don't even look at Instagram anymore for pictures. Um, is that something that you see yourself moving into or are you just going to stay with the stills, which is still perfectly fine as far as uh, a marketplace if you've developed one? I, um, you know, I mentioned about that transition five years into my photography and kind of drawing a line and that first five years and particularly around the four year mark, I was doing a little bit of video. I was putting the odd little video compilation up on YouTube and some of the, every now and then if I did a job for a tourism board or a brand or something, they'd say, oh, can you film some video as well? And I started dabbling in time-lapse and, and then when I moved here, that's when I said, you know what, it's not me. I don't want to be a jack of all trades and master of none. I'd rather just, give everything my passion is for the stills and um and obviously there's nothing wrong you know i knew that and i remember people saying that early on like oh you're smart doing the video because it just opens up more opportunities and i knew from a business perspective it certainly does if you could say to someone you can do it all but thankfully for me you know my client base is other photographers and i'm i steered away from doing any commercial or that like I said, tourism stuff, because I realized it's just not me. And even though you could always make a few extra dollars at the end of the year, I just had to say to myself, what, what is my true passion? What do I really just want to give my hundred percent to? And it's just still photography. So it's a little bit tricky now because the, the courses I make and even some of the YouTube stuff I'm putting up now, cause I still, I've got a YouTube channel, which I'm building up and it's just, you know, it's kind of like just going out on a shoot with me and I'll try and teach some things along the way. And I'm torn because when I'm filming those, I'm like, oh, should I film some B-roll? And then I'm like, but I don't want to. I don't want to be a video guy. And it's like this weird, I don't know what it is with me. I just don't. <laughs> it's like I feel like putting a disclaimer up saying, oh, yeah, this footage is, I'm not trying to make this look. I don't know. I, I, feel, I mentioned at the start about having an addictive personality, and I feel like I'm either all or nothing. So when, when I'm doing a bit of video for YouTube as part of my actual video, I feel like, ah, oh, if I'm going to film B-roll, then it should be really good, but I don't want to put in the time to make it really good. So I'm going to purposely make it not that good. I don't know. It's just this weird complex in my head. To answer your story, no, I don't want to be a video guy. <laughs> I don't want to be a video guy, but I'm kind of forced to at the moment. So I'm just doing the bare minimum to... I'd rather the images do all the work and hopefully the content itself itself. And then yeah, the, the bit of B roll I do is just, yeah. Cause there's other, there's so many landscape photographers on YouTube and their, their stuff is like cinema grade production. And I just like, no, oh, I don't want to try and compete with that or yeah, it's weird. <laughs> I just pulled up your YouTube channel. So that's pretty cool. I'll just have to check that out. But I, I think it's tough, right? To not, 
I don't know. Today's world is so video driven, and then to not shoot it is, I get it. I totally get that, and I think that's kind of cool to just stay with the one thing. But then for me, I'm always like, ah, I have to do everything just right, and I have to have it good. So then I would be the opposite of you. I would have to make, you know, it's twice the time then, too, with every every place you go if you're going to do it right and then twice the gear and it's, it's it's a lot of work so i get i get the positioning it's pretty cool yeah and like even my original instagram i was like what do i do with this account because it's got double the followers of the one i use now um but like i said that one it was just i just wanted to start fresh and the algorithm really hurt that original account as well so with that one the original one maybe once a month i'll post on it and I'll just post a iPhone video because when I'm out in the field, I do film video uh, just on the phone, just for Instagram stories or whatever. So my original account is just these pretty crappy iPhone videos now. <laughs> you know, I could put up really nice cinema grade stuff, but like I said, I just don't want to film it. So there, it looks funny. You've got this account that has a decent following and it's just literally these 10 second random iphone clips of when i've seen something really cool in nature and it's like i'm just purposely not trying to put too much effort in but yeah i just feel this weird division and uh i don't know man look honestly if i could i would get a videographer to join me and he can film the youtube and let me do what i do which is the stills and the teaching and then that in an ideal world. So I guess that answers deep down that, yeah, I don't want to do the video. I wish someone could do it for me. So <laughs> we'll see. Who knows? Well, that is the dream scenario with any sort of video thing. I mean, it's so hard to do everything yourself. I mean, people do it and people do it really well, but you'll see really popular and successful people doing it. Then they start out doing it by themselves and it's pretty good, but they always evolve into having a staff of, you know, a couple of shooters and a couple of editors that are helping create this content. So in at the end of the day, it's just their personality and just their content that they're putting out that works. But now it's super polished and it's working even better, right? So you got those people out there that can, I think deep down it's the same scenario. Exactly. You got to start from the ground up and you got to do it yourself. You know, that's just how it is. And the editing, the editing is a whole different beast in itself just for the, the time consumption. I said to someone recently, if I go film, if I take a day out in the field to film and try and create something and film the process, for me, it's almost two days to edit and get it finished. And that could just be to make a 20 minute YouTube video. Uh, so it's, it's three days total, a day in the field, two days back in the computer. And yeah, those two days on the computer, there's a probably a lot of procrastination involved, but it still ends up being <laughs> about that. Um, so <laughs> it's incredible how time consuming it is. And we live in a world now where we consume content so rapidly and there's not even a thought put in by most people about the effort involved in creating. We almost expect it like, come on, man, where's my where's your video this week or whatever it is. And, you know, you don't get, I don't get paid to put stuff on YouTube. That's three days just to, to put out a 15 minute, 15 minute video out to hopefully help someone. And, but that's just, that's the, the landscape we live in now with the, this, you know, digital era that we're in. And fortunately I don't, I don't mind doing it and I'm grateful I'm in a position where I can dedicate that time to doing that stuff. But I just can't believe how time consuming it is. And even the editing, I wish I could outsource that, but that's a tricky one because 
I'm such a control freak and because I filmed it, I know how the final things should look and I'd find that very hard to translate to someone and let them run with it. It'd be pretty tricky, but um, yeah, it's crazy, man. Like the my photography, you know, I'm a full-time landscape photographer, but how much of that time is spent taking landscape photos and then how much is spent doing video, doing editing, doing social media? It's crazy that I probably spend 10% of my year taking photos and then that other 90% is all those other things. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's pretty common too. I mean, that's just the way it goes. And that's something that I wanted to get in into with you just briefly, Will, because every, you know, wildlife guys, you pretty much take the scene that you have and, and that's what you've got to work with. You know, not, we don't do sky replacements. We don't do that type of thing. I did, this was a while back, but I got commissioned. This rancher wanted me to come out and photograph his bull bison because he didn't know how long it was going to live. And it was just a plain blue sky, but he wanted it on this day because he knew where it was going to be. And uh, so I went out, got it. And then I just messed around with some of those tools in Photoshop and made something that was printable for him. Um, But as far as true wildlife, we try to, you know, stick to the scene that you've got and not enhance it in any way. Where do you find, you know, as a landscape photographer, you mentioned earlier, you, you know, you can do sky replacements if they complement the light, you know, that's in your image or in your scene. Um, where do you personally draw the line with that? It's like you said, where do you personally draw the line? That's the key it thing. It is personal. With, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, no. Yeah. And with landscape photographers, everyone draws their line in a different spot. For me, you know, it's my photos are all about the actual subject matter itself, which is a mountain or a tree or, you know, waterfall, whatever that may be. And then trying to get it in the right conditions. Uh, if it's a major part of the image, like a rainbow lightning, I'll never add that because it's not rewarding to me to go and put that and act like it was there. Uh, you know, sky replacements for years, I was completely against it. I just had that philosophy of no, you know, shoot, um, what, what you shoot is what you get essentially. But then I started going out to these really remote areas and putting in a lot of effort to get somewhere just like you guys would with wildlife. And, you know, let's say it's a mountain. I've got the fresh snow covering all the trees, the mountain. You've hiked up the ridge line. You've waited a year for this moment You've got the light on the landscape, so the sunlight's hitting everything genuine. But then, like you said, you might have that blue sky or something like that. You know, blue is a color that is so demanding. It's if I've got a forested uh, valley and a river and then warm light on a snow-capped peak, blue is a a very – it doesn't complement that type of scenery well. So I'd say maybe one in – 15 maybe one in 20 of my photos might have a sky replacement in it and it's purely to just complement the overall aesthetic you know just that artistic vision which i have for the piece um and light and sky it's just something that it's just it's just changing all the time um if someone looks at my work and they say, is that real? I want to be able to say to them, yes, that place is real. You can go there tomorrow and you will see the what you'd call like the permanent subject matter, the trees, the valley, the mountain. 
it looks 100% like that. But, of course, the light's always going to be different. So, yeah, I don't mind if a sky's replaced or anything like that. If someone says, was that sky replaced, I, I don't. of course I'll tell them. I believe in honesty and everything. But for me, I just see it as such a minor thing. It's like, you know, I like to look up to a lot of the master painters and I would never say to a painter, and I've got some friends that are, are wonderful landscape painters, and when I look at their work, what all I care about is how does it make me feel? When I look at that painting, does it hit me in the chest, in the heart? Does it make me go, wow? That's all I want to do with my photographs. I just want to try and translate that emotion. I wouldn't say to a painter, yeah, that's nice, mate, but... Where, what have you referenced for this painting? Did you really see that with your eyes? Was that cloud, that shape? Or It's irrelevant. I just find it so irrelevant. So I've certainly changed my approach, yeah. So something like a sky, sure, um, I don't mind replacing. It's so much more rewarding, obviously, to get the exact right conditions, but I've just learnt over the years that, you know, what I'm trying to make here is not documentary photos. I'm trying to make some kind of image of a, a literal place, um, you know, and try and show that through my own vision, not my own literal experience, if that kind of makes sense. So, look, it's a, it's a hard one to answer, but, yeah, long story short, sky replacement, go for it. Anything beyond that, me personally, it, it's just not for me. And it's funny because I've got, like, an ad on social media and one of the images I made for this tutorial was shot on a blue sky day on purpose and I got the light on the landscape. And then I made that tutorial showing people if you go somewhere, let's say you've traveled to the other side of the world and you've got this great location and you love it and you have one chance to photograph this and you got this blue sky, let me show you the tools and the ways that you could, you know, do the sky replacement, etc., etc. And it's just funny seeing – well, not funny, actually. It sucks. Just the hate that people put in on the comments, people saying um, – and I get it. It's controversial because, you know, I guess the early years of photography, it was like an unwritten rule, wasn't it, with a camera that a photo is reality. Um, but even though it's not – wasn't the case even in the early days, but I guess there's that unwritten rule in the back of our minds, like, oh, if it's a photo, it must be real. And that's uh, – it must be real. But that's slowly – disappearing that mindset um but yeah the people and you know they comment on this ad like this is not photography you're not a photographer and you know this is digital art and to be honest i don't care what it is i just one that was made as a tutorial anyway to showcase stuff but if someone looked at my work and like i said maybe one in 20 instead of the blue sky there's now some orange you know light orange clouds and someone says that you're no longer a photographer, you're a digital artist. I don't care. I don't care for labels. It just all I know is these places are real. I was there looking at that subject matter, and this is my interpretation of the place. So it's a controversial one, and, and I understand why. And I, I see all sides of the argument. And there's people that would put the rainbows in and the lightning and everything. And for me, I just I can't cross that line. But if it's just a sky and I can't get back there again with the conditions, then whatever, I just, I'll do it. You know, just like if I was a painter and I had the brush, I would say to myself, what colours up in that little sliver of sky, that probably total of 15% of the whole image, what colour is going to work best here? And that's kind of the approach I have. So it's almost just like as if I was a painter. Um, but yeah, it, it's, a, it's a controversial one. It is, and that's why I ask it. 
I, I like to hear everybody's take on it. I mean, we've had uh, a couple landscape photographers on before, and it's they've got the same outlook that you do. I mean, if it's possible that those conditions could be present in that location, they're representing the location, honestly. But if it's possible that those conditions could be at that particular location, then you know they don't see anything wrong with with making those minor changes and adjustments. It's just it's yeah, a different. A it's a totally the, different mindset with wildlife. But I I fully agree with you as far as the landscape one one time one off opportunity. Sorry, I cut yeah. you off there. Go ahead. No, no, you're right. Um, you know, one of the things, one of my passions is. I do a bit of aerial photography, uh, maybe once a month or who knows how much, but it's not crazy amount, but it's more than the average person. And one of the things I started trying to incorporate into my aerials is capturing the full moon, either rising or setting, uh, which only happens once a month, obviously. And it's incredibly rare because you've got that one opportunity a month and then you throw in wind or rain, which happens a lot in New Zealand, um, and that one opportunity a month gets diminished a lot. It's it, Sorry, so that would be 12 times a year, but really with the weather, it's maybe three to four times if you're lucky. So I've started to get a few moon aerial shots and I've got a few I haven't released yet and it's so rewarding, you know. It's like, to me, it's setting the bar as high as possible and, you know, you could easily just shoot any old area and drop a moon in, but it'd just be so unfulfilling for me to do that, you know, that to know that I put the effort in. So I don't know why me, I can say, no, that's got to be legit and the rainbow and the lightning, but then if it's cloud, it doesn't. Um, maybe, like I said, because the cloud is such a minor part of the overall piece, whereas lightning, rainbow, moon, that is a huge part of the subject matter. Whereas I just see cloud as just this, you know, when you look at my compositions, the sky is just often not a major role. It's the other 80% below what's happening. I said at the start how weather plays such a big role. A lot of what I want to photograph is not so much up in the sky, but the way the weather impacts the landscape with the rising atmosphere and everything like that. They're the things that in Photoshop, yeah, you can do a little bit, but the real deal you know, there's nothing that compares to it. And that's the thing that is the driving force and looking at the weather all the time. Um, you can tell when something's been done in Photoshop. So it's finding the way to do it tastefully, realistically, and I guess ultimately what's most fulfilling to you as as the artist itself. So yeah, it's it's an interesting one. <laughs> when you say aerial, are you – is that – from a helicopter or an airplane, or are you flying a drone to get that? I don't own a drone. Uh, I just don't like drones, and you can't use them here in the national parks anyway unless you have a permit. It's just messy, um, but I don't like them because I, I don't have that emotional connection. If I was using one, I've used them years ago, but um, I want to be looking at the subject matter with my own eyes, not looking at a screen. I just, For me personally, I don't connect if I was using one, um, you can make good images with them, obviously, but um, so they're not for me. So primarily using a, a small plane, I guess you guys would call them a bush plane, like a small Cessna. Uh, that would be what I do for 80% of my aerials. And then every so often, five times a year type thing, it might be in a helicopter um, to do the aerials. So yeah, using the plane primarily uh, to shoot. It's just such a good way to cover a large, expansive amount of ground, obviously, and just a completely different look on the landscape in New Zealand and Fjordland in particular. 
um, any mountainous region, really, the perspective from above is just, there's just another thing going together. It's incredible. So, um, yeah, it's quite fun and definitely have quite a few aerials in my portfolio built up from over the years. Well, what, uh, what can people expect if they, if they are able to come out with you on a workshop? What can they expect? What does that look like? You know, it's all my trips now are completely run spontaneously with the weather. So we don't have a set itinerary. We've got the areas that we're going to cover, but I'll do it in an order that's going to work best with the conditions. So really, you know, I guess if I was going to sum it up, it would be fun. I, I want people to have fun first and foremost. I'm, I'm very serious about my photography, but deep down, I'm a pretty lighthearted guy. Um, so I want people to have fun, good camaraderie. We're all there for the same reason, right, to have a good time. So it's really fun with like-minded people and then improving your photography and learning things, um, you know, specifically to what they would like to learn. I like to run small group sizes. The maximum group size I ever do is six people. And that allows for that real more intimate environment and that one-on-one -on -one learning as well. So, you know, it's going to be fun. It's going to be making some fond memories and then it's going to be going home with, you know, some of your best images to date and, and just learning uh, so many different things along the way. The New Zealand landscape and where I run my workshops here, the variety is just like no other. In, in two to three days, you've covered everything from seascapes, glaciated mountains, glacial lakes, rivers, fjords, temperate rainforest, waterfalls. You could actually do all that in one single day if, <laughs> if you really wanted to. So, um, you know, that's the main thing I'm trying to do. I want people to walk away just fun with fond memories and then, of course, those, those skills and those photographs that they're truly proud of. That's kind of what I try and put into my workshops. And so many of my workshops that I've ran over the years – I hold, you know, I treasure those moments because there's always those moments on those trips where you get flawed. And even me, the guy that's taking these people around and I'm returning to the place for the 150th time, inevitably you just encounter a moment that even flaws me. So there's always something that at the end of the week or whatever it is, we say to each other, wow, how good was that? And that's the question I like to ask everyone in my workshops on the final night was what was the standout? And it's always great to hear the responses and it's always different for everybody. Um, so yeah, look, I'm, I miss it to be honest. I I'm still running the odd workshop here, private workshops. I'm still getting the odd Kiwi person reach out and I'll take them out for a day or multi-day. Yeah. I really miss the, the camaraderie and just getting out there. Like I said, I, I went from being 10% online business to pretty much 90%. It's so different now just being completely alone with the video camera and the computer and, and man, it just drives me crazy after a while. I miss that camaraderie and the way that people's faces light up when I take them somewhere that I know like the back of my hand, but they're what they're seeing it for the first time. And I can see in their eyes that, that just wonder, you know, that, that excitement and reverence and it just keeps reaffirming to me why I do what I do. And, I really miss that and I can't wait to be able to, to get people over here again. That's for sure. No, I think that's a, that's a good place to, to leave that, at least that portion of the conversation. I think you summarized that very well. And, you know, I can't speak for everybody, but I, you know, I enjoy my time on my own. I enjoy being by myself, but I also, there are those times where you, you miss seeing your friends in the field, that kind of thing. That's what, that's what I've learned through the pandemic is how important that time is for me because 
you know, I live with my wife and two children and I have some friends here where I live, obviously, but my photography has always been a solo thing. And the main time that I would get to connect with other photographers and just talk about photography stuff, you know, stuff that my wife isn't interested in, for example, it was through the workshops and the pandemic really showed me how critical it was for me to, you know, I'd probably run a group workshop every second month just to give you a rough idea. So that was my chance to just have that that bonding and camaraderie with like-minded people and just to to talk about the thing that is most dearest to me. And, and to have that gone, it hit me about six months into the pandemic where I, I was like, wow, that, that was a big part of my life, um, you know, take away the business aspect of it. But personally, um, it was an outlet. It was it was socialising. It was bonding. And, yeah, we can all do that through social media, but it's not the same as face-to-face interactions, especially out in nature. Um, yeah, it's just a major thing. So I cherish my time solo, and most of my photography has always been solo and probably always will be. I love that. But the um, that bonding with like-minded people in out in the field is a big part of my life and yeah, quite critical to it for sure. That's well said. You guys have anything else? No, I just want to go to New Zealand now. Oh, I, <laughs> yeah, amen. Got, so there's this beach in the, on the North Island. There's a beach. It's near uh, Rotorua, and it's got some – it's not really sea stacks, but it's got this point that goes out in the water as the, the tides come in and out and the weather comes in from the west – uh, the weather just beats on this beach and you get these huge explosions of water over the top of this point. And that's the only thing I can think about. I mean, we I went down there to play American football we out, out of high school. That's why we went. Um, but to see this beautiful country and then not be able to really experience as much of that as I would have liked, even at 18 years old, that's been the thing that has always called me back down there. And then, of course, the people. Uh, when you said you like to have a good time, I've never met an Australian or a Kiwi that didn't like to have a good time. So the the people are a big part of that as well. Um, so I, I can't wait till the day when I can get back there and, and take my family back with me so they can see it as well. But that's one thing that's always been on my mind. And so, when yeah, when Mike said that, I was I was thinking the same thing. You're welcome anytime. And, you know, where I live, Fiordland, we have the only population of elk. So red deer can be found across most of the South Island. But Fiordland in particular, we have a certain wilderness section that has an elk population. Um, so you guys would have an absolute ball out there. Just, yeah, I think you'd absolutely love it and get some great images. I always, I think of you guys actually, whenever I think of the, we, we call it Wapiti here, but, um, you know, I think it was gifted to New Zealand, um, you know, about 100 years ago, this population of Wapiti, and they've just kind of, you know, they've got their own little population there and they don't migrate too far. So there's just these specific valleys, and I haven't got out there yet either, but it would be such a fun experience to, to go out there and try and – I'm always trying – although I don't shoot wildlife, if the opportunity arises to complement wildlife in a landscape – I'm all for that. So my favorite animal is the kia, the the alpine parrot, which you guys are probably familiar with. So I've got about three images now where I've been able to get really close and put the kia in the landscape image. It's just an ongoing kind of project of mine if the opportunity ever arises. But a dream shot for me would be a grand landscape 
Like basically, if you look at my normal images, that type of shot, and then just a nice either you know one of the wapiti or just a red deer in general, just on the so you know I'd love any wildlife photographer to do a trip out here in Fjordland and work together and get those shots would be so fun. Yeah, I'm game. I'm down as soon as you guys open up. Sweet. Yeah, get, getting an environmental wildlife shots, I can't think of a, I, you know, for lack of a better term, I can't think of a more epic landscape to attempt that in, you know, outside of Alaska. Alaska, anywhere you point the camera could be a, a postcard. And yeah. the South Island, from everything that I've seen of the South Island of New Zealand, it's it's the same. So, and you've got the, you know, the, the tar, the chamois, um, that were yeah. basically all the animals there are, none of them are native, uh, the big game animals, but still to be able to photograph them in that landscape, I think would be a great opportunity. Yeah. And you don't have to get too high in altitude to get those animals. The tar, you know, you can get at a pretty low altitude. You can't do that anywhere in the world but here in nz yeah which outside of the himalayas <laughs> at 18 exactly. 17 18 000 feet that's the big difference <laughs> so where can people find you if you know when new zealand does open its borders back up where can people find you and uh lock in the opportunity to shoot with you yeah all the usual places of course uh instagram handle is uh, William Patino underscore photography, williampatino.com for my main website. And then, uh, yeah, the YouTube, might as well plug the YouTube. But if you put my name in on YouTube, um, I'll come up there. But yeah, if it, you can always DM me on any of the socials or, of course, email as well. And yeah, it'd be an honor to, to have anyone join a trip in the future or anything like that, or just even leave a comment on social media is always appreciated. I still, you know, like I said, doing just say social media for 10 years and I never take for granted, you know, the fact that people take their time just to even leave a comment. I know, especially today, how quick we consume our social media and everything. And I feel like a comment is more, is more appreciated than ever these days. So yeah, it means a lot. And yeah, just to have my work resonate with people is, you know, it's more than I could have ever asked for when I picked up a camera. Well, we certainly thank you for your time and thanks for being patient with us trying to do the math and figure out the time difference <laughs> and get all of us lined up. But we thank you for being on and, and uh, look forward to the potential opportunity to shoot with you sometime in the future. No, I appreciate it guys. And I'll definitely be in touch when I hopefully can come up your way sometime in the future as well. Thank you. Absolutely. Hey, we know a guy in Alaska, by the way, just in case you ever want to get out that way. So <laughs> You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way. We will be the biggest band in town.